Well, as you know, we'll be in the book of Mark again, chapter 8. Turn there if you'd like to follow along. Before we begin, I'd like to ask the Lord's blessing upon his word. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you, thankful for your word, and we pray that it would find good soil and produce much fruit. And we pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. As we begin, we will actually be starting in verse 27, but I read just a little context, back up a little bit, but just to see again, as we see through the book of Mark, Mark's account of the Lord Jesus Christ's earthly ministry, just that flow, just that pace as it moves, and the quickening always on the move, on the go, as we see here. One thing, uh, kind of an odd note, but I remember uh, growing up, uh, spending some time with my own grandmother and watching movies with her, and she liked to watch a lot of old movies, old to me. <laughs> and one of them, I don't know if some of you may, may remember, uh, we watched some TV Movies on TV, there's a series of movies with Bing Crosby and Bob Hope called On the Road. On the Road to Morocco, I think, was their most well-known one, but there's a whole series of them. They kind of traveled the globe, and there's a song. I'm not going to sing it, <laughs> but they, you know, let's do, do this little song and thing as they traveled around the world, on the road, on the road again. It's kind of funny, that was back in the day when, you know, Hollywood, when they had a hit and the moneymaker, play it again. <laughs> Just roll that one again. An odd way it came to mind, you know, the Lord is, is always on the move, always on the go. And we just saw part of the last time we, we, we were in the book of Mark, we preached, we saw the account of him healing the blind man at Bethsaida. And there's only a few, you know, you know, a short paragraph or so of the account of that that takes place, and it's on the move again. It's on the road, going up to Caesarea Philippi. You may be sure you know, Bethsaida was on the, 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 the north end of the Sea of Galilee, and Caesarea Philippi was, give or take, 20, 25 miles north of towards Mount Hermon, as it were. And uh, on the road, but it, you know, while he's on the road and when they're headed toward Bethsaida, what we really see here, and spoiler alert, the ultimate destination, the road the Lord Jesus Christ now takes specifically, he always was on it, but now, very specifically, he is on the road to the cross. This is where his ministry really begins to take that turn. This is where he really begins to put that focus on where he's going and why he came. And you may say, well, that seems an odd path to take. You know, he's going on the cross, you know, the crucifixion takes place down in Jerusalem. Why is he going north? <laughs> well, I'm sure some of you know the, that the shortest distance isn't always between two, or the, <laughs> with the Lord, the shortest distance between two points isn't always a straight line. <laughs> he's going to get there in his time. But as we pick up our our passage, our account, in verse 27, we already said that now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi. They're on the road, walking, most likely, 
doesn't say, but it seems to be their usual mode of transportation. They don't seem to be hiring any type of carts or caravan-type transportation or camels or anything like that. They seem to walk. They seem to walk everywhere they went. They're on the road. And Jesus asks a question, which probably takes place if you've ever been on a road trip, you've ever been traveling, sometimes you've got to do something to pass the time. Conversation can fill that. You can play games. You play road games when you're traveling, families, you know, the, the license plates game, you know, different cars game, signs game, I spy with my little eye type things. Anyways, the Lord asks a question. Now, questions make people think. I just have to remember, the Lord is always teaching. The Lord is always teaching. It's not merely a game of 20 questions that the Lord's engaging here. And the Lord Jesus Christ lived out, you don't have to turn there, but Deuteronomy eleven nineteen. 19. Let's read it. It says, You shall teach them to your children, speaking of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. Before the Lord Jesus Christ didn't just talk the talk, he walked the walk. He knew what it meant to teach. And he knew every opportunity was a teaching opportunity. Especially with this group of guys. <laughs> And we'll chuckle. We'll chuckle a little bit more, hopefully, in this passage as we move through it. But he begins with a question. I don't know what other conversations were taking place at this time, but he begins with a question here. He asks his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? I wonder what kind of conversations were taking place at this time. Is this random or was this piggybacking on something they, they were discussing? But yes, who do men say that I am? Let's get some thinking. Now, what have you heard? What's the word on the street, boys? You've been amongst the crowds, the people. What do they say? Is Jesus just looking for feedback? Polling the numbers? Seeing which way the wind blows? So to speak. No. <laughs> and he's going somewhere with this question. He's got a purpose. He's got a, 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 a purpose to, the, to where, why he's asking this. But he gets them thinking. And you can see in their response in verse 28 how they respond. Simply they, so they answered. John the Baptist, some say, Elijah and others, one of the prophets. They give several responses, several very specific thoughts that people are talking about, that people are saying who Jesus of Nazareth is. What's going through people's minds, who they think he is. This is John the Baptist. It's interesting, we know Herod thought this. Keep your finger here if you want to turn back briefly to Mark chapter 6, verse 16. If you go back up, I mean, we'll start in verse 14. Now, King Herod heard of him, Jesus, that is, 
For his name had become well known, and he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. John the Baptist is risen from the dead. In verse 15, others said it it is Elijah, and others said it is the prophet, or one like the prophets. But verse 16, Herod says, but when Herod heard it, he said, this is John whom I beheaded. He has been raised from the dead. I think in Tara's case, he was a little afraid <laughs> what this all might mean. But some thought it was John, raised from the dead. Which is interesting, because if anyone knew, the two of them occupied the same space when the Lord was baptized. That's a little weird, <laughs> why they might think that. But still, people think weird thoughts when, they don't, when they're trying to wrap their rational mind around the situation. So anyways, it was one possibility was John the Baptist. Some said Elijah. Elijah, that great prophet of old, mighty in work and deed. Perhaps even out of reason they thought this. After all, Elijah never died. And there's an interesting thought there. <laughs> Reality. Taken up from heaven, up to heaven, sorry. Never tasted death. Perhaps that's who this is. Come back. One of the prophets, or one like the prophets. So some aspect, even scripturally, they were expecting a prophet to return before the Messiah. Perhaps that's who this is. One like the prophets, the prophet coming before the final arrival of the Messiah. All these thoughts, all these conversations going on. They'd heard people talking, whispering, discussing who this man was. They're walking and talking, discussing this as they go. So already their minds are at work, thinking about what they've heard, people discussing about their Lord. It's interesting, of course, as any good teacher, he doesn't just ask them one question. The first question may have got them to think. This next one's really going to challenge them. Really bring it to the point that it needs to be brought to. In verse 29, the Lord says, And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? What do you believe? And ultimately, that is the question. While it may be interesting to know what everyone else says, what their thoughts on the matter are, that's not what really matters. What do you believe? Who do you say that I am? It's interesting. These fellows have been with the Lord from the very beginning of his ministry, that is. From his baptism onwards. They've seen a lot of things. Who do you say that I am? And Peter, 
Good old Peter steps up. And a great answer, really. Perfect answer. Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. You are the Christ. Translated, You are the Messiah. You are the Messiah. Meaning literally anointed or anointed one. The promised one. The chosen one. The word anointed is often referred to, it can be either anointed for a special office or a special purpose. Throughout the Old Testament, we see different types of anointing for different offices, different uh, purposes. In the book of Leviticus, we see that the priests were anointed. We're anointed for that office. We're anointed for that role, to be that intermediator between man and God. The prophets are called the anointed of God. In Psalm 105, 15. The anointed of God. The chosen by God. The set apart by God. And even in Psalm 2, verse 2, you see that the king of Israel is described as anointed of the Lord. David even referred to King Saul as God's anointed. His chosen. His set apart. In that case, that while David had the opportunity to take Saul's life, which in a human aspect would have been justified. I mean, Saul was trying to kill him. And I get him before he gets you. But David said, no. He is God's anointed. He is God's chosen for a specific purpose. Vengeance is his. I'll leave it in his hands. It is not my place. So all through the scriptures we see priests, prophet, king, anointed. All fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Only in him. Not just a anointed, but the anointed. The anointed one. What a statement about Peter. And he does so publicly. Now, maybe not large, but at, at the very least, there were 12 other men there could witness this public statement by Peter's. And it's possible that others were tagging along. You know, at different times that the Lord had a larger group traveling with them. Women attended to their knees at times. Peter publicly declared the Lord Jesus Christ and confessed him as the Messiah. And while it isn't here, but keep your finger here, let's turn to Matthew. Because the Lord recognizes this and, and, and takes time in, to notice in, 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 in Peter's statement here. Matthew chapter 16. Verse 15. Matthew 16, verse 15. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? 16. Simon Peter answered and said to you, said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, 
Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So we see in Matthew's account uh, 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 the Lord's response to Peter, the Lord's uh, praise in, in an essence of Peter's declaration of who he is. He commends Peter for this confession, for this statement. Telling him, blessed are you. And that flesh and blood has not revealed it. Mere reason Mere intellectual understanding hasn't uh, brought you to this point. But God, the Father, has. And part is that through the written word that Peter knew, but also through the work of the Holy Spirit opening Peter's eyes to the reality of who Jesus Christ is, brought him to that point. And the Lord uh, solidifies Peter's prominent role within the disciples and the apostles at this point. You could almost say this is like one of Peter's high watermarks in his life. First, Peter got out of the boat. <laughs> For all his faults, Peter had some pretty stellar moments. The only one who climbed out of that boat. And he's the first one to speak up with the opportunity to say, You are the Christ. And I believe in you. What a dramatic moment. You wonder what all the other disciples, what, what they were thinking. Well, they wanted to chime in. Well, me too. <laughs> Sorry, no prizes for second place, fellas. Uh, but what's interesting then when we see in the next part of the in verse 30 is then the Lord's response after Peter makes this great declaration this great confession the Lord says then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him again it's commands don't tell anyone in Matthew's, again, the same thing, but he just adds, do not tell anyone that he is the Christ. Again, it always seems contradictory, counterintuitive, if you will. Well, part of it, I think, simply is that it wasn't time yet. It's coming soon. That moment, that time for that word to go out to any and all is coming. Patience. Patience, fellas. It's coming. But not yet. Part because a lot of people in the world and the nation weren't ready for it. There's a couple things the Lord had to accomplish first. But he had to accomplish a couple things with these fellas yet too. And we're going to see that in just a moment. This whole passage, I honestly, to look at this, it's like the Lord's 
Introduction to the Cross 101. And he's going to delve deeper into it in the next couple sentences here, in this next, pa- this next paragraph. Because while Peter made this great confession, this great statement of truth about the Lord Jesus Christ and who he is, the Lord then delves into the meaning of what it really means about being the Christ, the Messiah. In verse 31 he says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. At this point, this is the first time that the Lord Jesus Christ talks about his death, burial, and resurrection. It's the first time in his earthly ministry that he teaches on it. the first time that the cross is really revealed of where he's going and what his purpose is for. He's been with these guys for some time now. It's the first time he teaches them this. But it's interesting too, in that passage, that first sentence there, he said that the Son of Man must Son of man must. One, he uses that title of his. He doesn't use that the Christ or the Messiah must. The Son of man. Again, that statement of his he uses so often in regards to himself. He doesn't grab hold of the, the, the position of Christ, the position of Messiah, but the mission. Says must. These things have to happen. It's not optional. It's not optional. This cannot be sidestepped. This cannot be. There's no detour around these things. This must happen. This must take place. The party's teaching them what the Messiah entails and what it's all about. Kind of a shock to these guys. It's almost like they have a, what you talking about, Willis, moment? It's like, what? You're going to get rejected? You're going to suffer? You're going to die? <laughs> what are you talking about? And again, you can think all what's going through all their minds, but again, Peter to the rescue. <laughs> Peter's going to step forward and he's going to, you know, he's going to make this clear that, no. Nah, no, this isn't going to happen. Verse 32. Here comes Peter. Now, first the Lord said, He spoke this word openly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Oh, Peter. <laughs> and I chuckle because you can identify so well with that man. <laughs> the ups and the downs, the successes and the failures. This first statement, you know, he says that the Lord spoke openly. There's no ambiguity in the Lord's teaching about his suffering and his death. He spoke plainly. He wasn't teaching in some, some parable or some illustration. Very specifically, very plainly. There's no head-scratching going on here. Well, there was simply be, not because they couldn't understand what he said. 
couldn't believe it. Again, the crux of the matter, belief. And Peter responds. Peter steps up, takes the Lord aside, and began to rebuke him. <laughs> you know, it's one of those things you like to tell Peter, Peter, that's not going to go well. <laughs> rebuke some, rebuke to admonish, to find fault with. Find fault with the Lord of heaven. <laughs> oh, that man. But perhaps to his credit, he did this at least privately rather than publicly. If you could find anything redeemable in this, this particular moment, he at least did it alone rather than in front of everybody. You see, because Peter, like I really do, I think he understood what the Lord was saying. He just couldn't accept it. He couldn't believe it. It doesn't make sense. It contrasted with everything that Peter believed or thought he knew about the Messiah contradictory to everything he had in his mind. I'm glad we don't get that kind of mindset with the Lord. How he functioned, how he acts, and we get in mind what he should be doing, and when he doesn't, we go, what? How can that be? Lord, you're willing to forgive everybody? Everyone? Even the murderers? Those who committed genocide? Those who spit in your face? Yeah. Yes. I'm astounded how often I'm reminded that the Lord's ways are not our ways. That his thoughts are not our thoughts. As the heavens are above the earth, so are his ways, thoughts above ours. And God be praised they are. Because <laughs> if they were man's, whew, we'd be in trouble. But, the, but Peter, he was looking at things the way man looks at things. Didn't make sense. Peter rebukes him. Don't be so negative. Stop with all this defeatist attitude. How can you think that way that you're going to be rejected? That you're going to be beaten, suffered, and killed? Again, part, I'm going to cut Peter some slack a little bit after all he'd seen. All the healings we just... Picked up right where he left off, healing a blind man. The Lord provided meals for thousands of people from nothing. He saw him command demons who had to fall down, worshiping him and obeying him. He saw the very wind and waves obey. And mere men are going to take you away and beat you and kill you? Inconceivable. <laughs> I see the grins, yes. Inconceivable. Unbelievable. 
Those thoughts, <laughs> those words do not mean what you think you mean. It's interesting. Just a moment ago, Peter had such a high point in his life. You know, with high water marks, we know they're a high water mark because the water doesn't stay there. <laughs> the water recedes. <laughs> and it did for Peter at this moment. Just as it does for us. We have our ups, we have our downs, we have our great moments of faith only to completely drop the ball at some other point. It's interesting, too, what we see here. In verse 33, the Lord's response to this. The Lord was teaching the cross. Peter couldn't embrace it. Peter couldn't accept it. He was almost rejecting it. But the Lord embraced it. The Lord was seeking it because of what it meant, what it would accomplish. In verse 33, it says, But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. <laughs> One good turn deserves another. Rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. Ooh, boy, that escalated quickly. Jesus wasn't going to let this go. He was not going to let this go unanswered, unresponded to. We can see just how serious the Lord takes the statement by Peter, by his response. One, he does so publicly <laughs> in front of everybody. Have you ever been rebuked? Well, we don't really use that term a lot. <laughs> called out for a failure, called out for a mistake. You like it? <laughs> I don't. <laughs> Especially when it's done in front of other people. It's like, come on, man. Could have told me that in private. <laughs> but there are some things that need be done publicly. And the Lord knows. <laughs> the Lord knows the time and the place and when it needs to take place. I think that's because the seriousness of this. The seriousness of trying to turn him aside from the path that he was on. Turn him aside from the road that he was destined, determined to go down. He took this very seriously. Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of things of God, but of the things of men. Lord used some strong language right there. Very strong. I'm going to say part of it was it because it was Peter's arrogance on display here? Did he get a little too big of a head after, you know, the 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 accommodation that the Lord just bestowed upon him just a few moments ago. I'm like, oh, yeah. Yeah, the Lord has brought me to this understanding. God the Father has revealed this to me. 
Oh, yeah, I am going to get the kingdom, the keys of heaven. And kings, I am, you know. I'm a pretty big deal around here now. If anyone's going to tell the Lord that he's mistaken on something, it's me. It could be. I mean, pride cometh before destruction, haughty spirit before a fall. And everyone is capable of that. Getting a little too big for one's britches. And two, when the Lord would be saying, who do you think you are? I've got to knock you down a peg again, Peter. You just acknowledged me as the Messiah, as the Son of God. And we see in Matthew. <laughs> God incarnate. And you're going to call me out for being wrong? Peter, Peter, Peter. We know that the Lord disciplines those he loves. And he loved Peter. He loved Peter. And he wasn't going to leave him in such a state. going to leave them in that kind of place of arrogance and pride. He wasn't going to leave them in that kind of place of theological error. He's going to correct it immediately. The Lord is anything if proactive. He doesn't react. He's going to deal with things immediately. But also, was it, you know, Satan at work behind the scenes? I mean, the Lord, while he rebukes Peter directly, he uses the Satan's name specifically. Was it another temptation, another attack? You can keep your finger here, but turn to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. Verse 13. Now this is after the Lord's temptation in the wilderness and the Lord's and, and Satan's attacks on him. At that time, again, trying to deter him, trying to turn him aside from his mission. Verse 13 says... Now, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Interesting. Now, we're never told specifically if Satan ever came back. There's some instances it seems that he was hanging around. I don't think he ever gave up. He's fighting a battle to the bitter end. That old enemy, he's going down swinging no matter what. I do think that maybe this was one of those times. Influencing Peter. Taking that moment of maybe, you know, Peter's pride kind of rises up. And oh, Satan loves to work through pride his own sin from the very beginning he knows it very well whispering in his ears so to speak go ahead Peter yeah you're right Lord's not going to suffer and die no way you got to help him understand that 
Peter's pride, Satan at work? I would say yes and yes. Yes. In fact, I think right there, there's a good example of the world, the flesh, and the devil trying to deter the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn him aside. Completing his mission, completing his purpose. We see back in the Lord's, in, in, in Mark chapter 8, in that response. Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of things of God, but of things of men. You're not mindful of things of God. You're looking at this from the world's perspective, from the flesh, trying to make sense of these things. But you are not mindful of things of God. That you will not deter me from my mission. I will succeed. I will be victorious. I think as we see this, the Lord putting an exclamation point again. He knew it was at work. and He was not going to be deterred. Father, when I look at this, you know, how to conclude. And I struggled with that. All I think, you know, how every great story, and really what we're seeing is God's great story, and every great story, no matter how great or how interesting it may be, pales in comparison to the reality of the story of Jesus Christ. For he is the hero, the greatest hero in history. And he wasn't going to give up his purpose was to redeem mankind. His purpose was to redeem you. You're so precious and so worth it. Nothing, no roadblock, no battle, no enemy was going to be too big or too daunting to overcome. That's what the Lord was headed for. He was headed for the cross. And he was trying to help his disciples understand, this is where I'm going. This is why I'm here. It's for you, for all mankind. I'll end with this. I don't know if it quite ties in, but talking to one of my brothers one time who he does not believe yet. Hung up looking at the world and the, the, all the mess that it is, and specifically what some view as, as the, the deterioration of the physical world. And what they see is the doom of our age, of our climate and our environment falling apart. I won't deny that. It's getting, <laughs> it's getting nasty out there. Not fit for man or beast, practically. And it bothered him bothered him that I wasn't bothered by it. Bothered that most Christians don't seem bothered by it or don't want to take up the mantle of saving the world. Trying to help him understand 
That's not the world that Jesus Christ came to save. It's not the physical world, the dirt, the plants, so to speak. Because he's going to remake it. He came to save you. Because while he'll remake the whole world, he's never going to remake you. each and every one of us is the only one of us that ever was, ever will be, or ever is going to be. Literally, when he made you, God broke the mold. And that's why he came. And that's why he's going to the cross. And that's why we praise him. Because he accomplished what only he could. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you were so focused on redeeming us, saving us, that you gave us your only begotten Son who would not be deterred by friend or foe from going to the cross and accomplishing that mission. We give you thanks and praise in your name, Lord Jesus.